Welcome to Kyle and Dave vs. Machine. My name is Kyle. And I'm just offended, Kyle. Oh my god. Morally. Yeah. And I'm the machine. Right-wing Dave over here. This is a podcast where a sentient machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year in order to prevent it from starting the apocalypse. That year just so happens to be 1982, but only for, like, three more weeks. The machine still threatens our lives oh if we god. don't review the films it asks us to, although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today... We're going to be watching the film, big intake of breath, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Down at the Chick Chick Chicken Ranch, where a lonely girl could have a chance, and a homely boy could find romance at the Chick Chick Chicken Ranch. The sheriff and Miss Mona for years had been red hot lovers and real good friends, but trouble snowballed like an avalanche at the Chick Chick Chicken Ranch. Of sorts, a self-righteous crusading fanatic got on TV like you wouldn't believe and pointed a finger right at it, exposing Miss Mona, accusing the sheriff. Then it rose to a roar from a whimper. It got all out of hand. A fit hit the fan when Thorpe stirred up everyone's temper. Oh, how's it at the end of the year already? I know. <laughs> kind of crazy because like it just started of course a big thank you to our patrons over on patreon their contributions help us continue the show since you know the machine doesn't help us pay for these movies plus each month we do a bonus episode over there you're going to be hearing about the original silence the japanese film silence from 1971 that would eventually also be made by martin scorsese in like 2017 or whenever that movie came out man loves a remake Mm -hmm. At least in the last 10 years. Well, it's one of those things where it's like, it's not a remake. It's using the same source material. It's right, right, using right. the same source material, but it's not a remake specifically. Anyways, you know, before we get into talking about this week's film, Dave, a lot of people tune into this podcast, not for our film analysis or our, our hot takes, but hot to... Take. But it's to expand this ever-reaching fiction that we have provided our loyal listeners over the past, like, almost four years. I mean, that's why I'm here. For the story. <laughs> Yeah. We are hurtling through space and time uh, somehow because uh, you push some random buttons here. I just want to know, where did all these chickens come from? Well, we got to pay for the boat somehow. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Who knew that time travel was just not instantaneous? You still have to like travel long, long roads. And you know, uh, just quickly on Dolly Parton, I'm just going to, did you know that they were so poor that oh, the yeah. doctor... Uh, yeah, was paid in cornmeal or something to deliver her. <laughs> you, like if you, it's not just chickens. <laughs> as the huge Dolly fan as I am, I know a lot about her. I wouldn't say I know everything about her, but like when we say poor, she was poor oh, yeah. <laughs> when she was growing up. Twelve kids in a room. Anyway, sorry, I'm jumping ahead, but as soon as you said uh, mm -hmm. chickens, I realized uh, that's not an exaggeration. People pay for stuff. It's not. But that's Here's the it's called barter. Here's the bigger thing I want to delve into here this week. This is just some news stories that popped up in the news. I do want to have some time to talk about that is like when people are listening to this two and a half weeks out of date, but I still want to jump into it. Dave, you know about the sight and sound poll that comes out every 10 years, correct? Well, I know that you know about it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I feel like I've been like laying these breadcrumbs throughout You're this entire season this thing. Yeah, because yeah. I knew that this was going to happen. You know, there was a sight and sound poll that came out in 1982. Oh yeah, that makes sense. Right? Because right. every mm -hmm. 10 years, it kind of comes Citizen out. Citizen Kane, I'm sure. Yeah. Yes, in 1982, it was still Citizen Kane. It was the number one movie of all time. They released a new one here in 2022. And Dave, you're so lucky not being on social media. 
because you have not had to endure the release of this, this excitement of like the film fan community, and then the backlash of the list, and then the backlash to the backlash of the list, and then finally the backlash to the backlash that happened because of the backlash to the release of this list. This is, is why social media is draining. <laughs> There's no information there, Kyle. It's mm. just vitriol. And you would think someone like me would enjoy that, but I'm angry because of it. <laughs> I don't like to participate in it. Here are some facts. The, the, the oh, first, you have to introduce what the controversy is, which is probably the first place film. Let, let me guess. It's because of the first place film. Let me walk you through this. Here are some facts, Dave. Much like the Academy Awards. It's fake. You start. Well, it's fake. But yes, I mean, <laughs> we should preface everything about this. This is just a small portion of people's opinion. So right. we really shouldn't care all that much. But this That's is. That's right, Kyle. We really ought not to care. This so is much. a foundational snapshot. What I like about the sight and sound poll specifically is that it doesn't happen every year. It is a snapshot of both the critical community, like the critics who write reviews for movies, like what they think the best movie of, of all time is. And for the last two lists i think they've done it or three lists i guess they've had a director's only poll so they only talk to film directors what their top movies of all time are who cares but i like that because it's a snapshot you see like what people are caring about not people not people yes, yes. uh no cinephile elite i think okay, it's very fine. important kyle that is not a populist opinion and has nothing to do with culture at all yeah <sighs> I would, I would debate you on the culture piece. I agree with you that it is the elite that they're, they're okay. talking about. This. Okay, so right, I, I will agree with you on that. I'm nitpicking. I'm twittering you. Yeah, because you really want Transformers 4 to be the top movie of all time because you want the populist choice. No. You need the populist choice. I, but, but that does reflect culture more than sight and sound polls. Transformers 4 being a moneymaker explains why America's broken in half. <laughs> Honestly, Kyle, it's, the world is that dumb. That that Maybe. piece of shit made but money. But this is not us talking about the, the Transformers. Sorry. What I appreciate about it is that it's a snapshot. You see like what critics, at the very least, think is important. And okay. it does change. There are certain movies that jump up into the top 10 and then fall out of it completely. Movies that have sustained them being in the top 10. I just find that interesting to see. What do people find important? I noticed that once again they asked no robot critics. What a joke. The reality of the situation is this. Why I made the Academy Awards a comparison here just a second ago is that it started off being very tiny. Like we're talking 60 people where the was the first sight and sound poll in 1952. Barely should be a consequence because it's such a small fraction of people. Over the years, that has grown. So in 2012, for instance, that had grown to 846 critics they had reached out to. That's a lot of people. It is. And in this 2022 poll, it is 1,600. So they doubled the amount of people they went out and asked. Th that's a mistake. No, I don't it's think so. This is why the I think the biggest change in this list happened is because they are asking more women critics, more people of color, more international critics instead of just English-speaking language critics. So that's why you're seeing, I think, a big change and why some people are upset by that. That is what people are pushing back. The biggest pushback is why the new number one film of all time jumped basically jumped from not being on the list at all 10 years ago to now being the number one movie that is the biggest pushback people are having because usually you see a gradual rise up through the list let's get to that i just wanted to say here is the critics poll and going through the top 100 there are we're some not movies. gonna list 100 right no i'm not no no i'm not i just wanted <laughs> to, get point to the out, point of this thing <laughs> i just wanted to point out movies we have talked about that do appear on the list so for instance Yee. Yee is at number 90. Spirited Away is at 75. The Apartment and Blade Runner are tied at 54. 
and City Lights is at 36. So we've actually talked about some of those movies. And the top 10, we have okay. Singing in the Rain. Great, pick. great movie. Yeah. Man with a Movie Camera. This is, it's a 1920s silent film, which is like avant-garde. Mulholland Drive, Beau Travail, which is actually a film from 1999 that we did not cover, which we probably yeah, should maybe double it. back and, and watch. It's okay. by uh, Claire Denis, a famous French director. 2001 Space Odyssey, In the Mood for Love, Tokyo Story is number four, Citizen Kane, Vertigo, and then finally our new number one, me butchering the French language yeah, here. I'll do it. Jean Dielman, 23, Croix du Commerce, 1080, Bruxelles, I think is how you say that. Probably so it's an not, address. But sure. Yes, it's an address. I read about it after. Yeah, yeah I, I've known about this movie. I have never watched it. Like, I know the barest Kyle's amount of information. always talking about how he's known about every fucking I know. movie. Just get over it. If you haven't seen it, you don't know anything about it. That's true. The only thing I know <laughs> is that it's three and a half hours long. Yeah. And the hard sell for a lot of people is that for roughly the first hour you are literally just watching someone do housework that's what i've heard now i don't know yeah. if that's exaggerated or it's like just a long time before the plot the synopsis, kicks in. i can understand why critics like it mm -hmm. but just like as far as synopsis is concerned it's so art house anyways keep going no i i'm i really now want to watch this uh i I've been meaning to watch it for a long time. It's, it's, it's honestly, it's the runtime. There's the biggest block for me. It's like, do I have three and a half hours to sit down and watch yeah, of this? Of course you do. You watch so like six movie. or seven hours of movies a day. No, I don't. You don't, you exaggerate. Uh, I watch like two hours of films a day. <laughs> <laughs> that, that may be further, that closer to the truth. Mm -hmm. I want to know your opinions here on this top 10, Dave. I guess my problem with so if you have too small of a pool of voters, that's a problem. When you have too large of a pool, it's not just the number of people, but they can draw on too many options. That likely means a weighted scoring system. And we see this in uh, in soccer. There's a, something called the Balloon Door, which is like the number one soccer player in the world. And when you look at the ballot and they score, they give you a numerical amount of score depending on how you order it, it, it fucks up the waiting it's very so, strange from what i understand that is how best picture is decided at the academy awards which is mm -hmm. again why i think there's been some wacky things that have happened there in the last few years someone can correct me if i'm wrong i actually don't think they do weighted scoring in these you send in whoever they ask you send in 10 movies and you just get a point every time they show up on someone's list yeah, so they are not weighted at any rate okay so i i just i i find these polls misleading it's why polling in general and politics has started to fail it, it's just sure. it's a dead it's a dead science we learn we know too much about how stats are kind of should not be contextualized too much you know this shouldn't be called the top 100 it should just be like uh it should be more specific earn the most votes in this era but anyways this, this um, is the, the hard thing anytime someone says best Right? Yes. Because I think there's multiple ways to attack this. Like if you came to me and said, Kyle, what are the 10 best movies of all time? I would have to ask for clarification because I'm, I would yeah, actually want to know, like, are you asking me what I think the 10 like most important films mm -hmm. of all time, like objectively, quote unquote, which there isn't, but objectively what I think the 10 best films of all time are just like what my 10 favorite films of all time. Cause those are three different options for me. Even if you did that, how can you select 10? Uh, when I first watched, I don't know. Step Brothers, and sure. I was whatever thirty or twenty-five. Would that have been in my top ten? Probably. It, it was uproarious, right, mm -hmm. Kyle? But I love Singing in the Rain. I love Blade Runner, right? I loved uh, the Orson Welles film. I just watched Sunset Boulevard. I'm like, why is that not in the top I ten? Know. It doesn't. It doesn't make sense. There's 
literally millions of films. And then, of course, we hardly know anything about international cinema. I've never, I'm, I'm pretty sure I haven't watched anything out of continental Africa or, sure. you know, I've seen some Bollywood and German films, etc. But I, I couldn't tell you that I've seen, you know, a Serbian film or something like that. I have absolutely no idea what actually exists out there. So the whole premise is stupid. It's like the Oscars. It's just a stupid thing. I can understand why people do it. Everybody wants to pat themselves on the back about something. Like, for example, it's a great point. Why is Citizen Kane always the number one movie for the last 50 years? Is it because it's a good movie or is it because people have nostalgia for its impact on culture at the time? Like, I, nobody knows. Well, you also get into that point of like, well, I'm supposed to put this on my list. So I'm going to put it on my right, list. So there's I don't a feedback be loop. Because you do, they do publish like what people said. Like, yeah. This is not anonymous. And you don't want to look like an idiot, right? right? So mm -hmm. I don't know, right? To, I don't know. I'm not, I just am would not Would Citizen as, Kane be in your top 10? I, my personal I don't know top 10? Yeah. Probably not my personal exactly. top 10. I don't know if I would. I love that movie. I don't think I would put My it, top 50 probably, but my top I, well, 10. I don't know. Yeah. I couldn't give you a number. Mm -hmm. Like, would I rather watch... You know, Casablanca over uh, thing. Absolutely, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Does that make it a better film? I don't know. Well, I, I guess I, I I don't know. I think you're so much more negative on this the entire concept Life. of this. I just find this an interesting thing to delve into. Not because I think well, this is objectively now the best movie of all time, and I have to agree with this position. But I think the best thing that it does is again. Hopefully, this is my my thing. It introduces me to different films. Like oh, I, I this is getting more. Uh, uh, attention if, or like this movie has gone up 20 points or whatever it happens to be so there's more people thinking that this is a good film maybe we should check this out that's what it does for me personally i like to go and explore that broaden my horizons but to your point yes in the top 100 at least no films from africa no films from south america at all how many comedies it's probably a very low percentage yeah. and that's my big thing barely any comedies there's a few but barely any comedies one animated film that's like, like that seems weird to me. Yeah, it's really weird wrong. to me. It's just wrong. If we were to predict, will this feminist French film be number one in 10 years? I'm going to guess not. I'm right? going to guess no too. Actually, that's a lot of people are that's saying. That's a weird don't thing think too, gonna, right? Yeah. I think we're getting, and like you said, it's not bad from a um, constructive social perspective. If I'm introduced to this film I've never heard before, and one day it comes across my path and I say, you know what, maybe I should press play instead of saying no because it's french and mm -hmm. it's three and a half hours long so that part is good but there are other platforms to do that for example we could just tell each other we should watch this movie <laughs> yeah but i don't listen to you dave no i'm just saying it's <laughs> weird right i i don't know i think I, it's like that conversation starter and this is with any list anytime someone anyone any organization or person brings out a list there's going to be pushback because you didn't include this or you didn't mention this or you have a blind spot here or whatever it happens to be i don't really get into the whole like how dare you like indignation of it no i do like to call it the fact media. that there is there is and we said this in the airplane two episode not that i like that movie but i love the first airplane and that's a movie that i probably would put in my top 10 yeah and i think more people should push for like there being comedies being more represented in, in this yeah like airplane should be in a top 100 list i've made this comment too especially modern critical culture people are trying so hard to be seen that they have a constructed extremist view about whatever politics mm -hmm. that they stand behind largely leftist now because of like how many conservative film critics are there sure not as much yeah no not like it's very rare now because you don't want to be labeled uh, as someone who spends his time on parlor or whatever the <laughs> fuck 
Donald Trump is on. So that stuff's weird, right? It's mm-hmm. even with sight and sound poll bringing in 1600 critics and but now we have a political skew, right? And we have an international, I mean, it's good. Like we want feminist um, influence. We want international influence. But, you know, should we reflect? I'm watching uh, The Voice, right? Uh, as a, <laughs> well, That's your first something. problem. No, no, but you know what's interesting about shows like that in American Idol, and and we're it kind of brings us back to today's episode. Why the fuck do country singers win those competitions so often? And I'll tell you, Kyle, it's because what I consider good music is not what the populist American viewership does, and that viewership is not reflective of American popular culture either. That's a subset of the people who actually sit down and watch television and actually vote on their phone because they're so enwrapped with that system. Sure. So, but I, I, I don't, okay. should I assume that I watch The Voice and that everybody loves country music? That's crazy. That's what makes me upset because I can get into that hole. I mean, you bring this up a lot, this frustration that this isn't indicative or this isn't a great representation. It's only a subset. So what is the opportunity? What is the alternative? Well, I've never no talk idea. about anything. Like, is that what the alternative is? No, well, the alternative is something we're not capable of, which is uh, broad, engaged conversation education but we're not capable of that as society anymore so if we could for example uh, engage with our fellow person about simply films that exist without anyone getting upset and with an open mind saying well at least i'll take a look at it that would be the ideal but we know from experience that that's not how human beings work so that's fine i just don't i i just personally don't engage with it so if sight and sound poll comes out i'm glad to hear of the name of a movie i'm glad that uh, for the first time in a hundred years there are new movies in the top 10 but fuck who cares me like a lot it's like the oscars i don't give a shit if it won an academy award i just want to know if i'm going to enjoy it so the other list that they break out is the directors they only focus on directors that that was the director's one that is the critics one so the directors is honestly a much more interesting list if you look at the whole thing the top 10 is basically the same though but the full hundred list is really fascinating because then you do get some more like comedies bumping up into there most of the directors asked uh, on twitter at least people have been sharing around snapshots from the actual sight and sound magazine of like what their films they were and you get some wild picks so that's really interesting to pick through but movies that we've talked about that show up on the director's list yee again at number 93 Blade Runner at 62, Fanny and Alexander at 53, City Lights at 46, and Godfather Part 2 at 26. That was the big thing about the critics list, is that Godfather 2 went from a top 10 film to not in the top 100 at all. Like, it fell that far out. It's just puffing. You know, what I like about the direct, what I would trust more about a director's list is people who make movies love movies. Mm -hmm. People who critique movies generally, right? are probably assholes. <laughs> I actually think... <laughs> That's what we're accused of being. <laughs> is that I think that if for the next one, I guess, in 2032, I think they should ask more than just directors. I honestly think they should open that up to like writers, people who work on films, cinematographers. Well, too big. Then you get populism coming in, right? And I think... Well, that's what you want. You want the populist opinions uh, no, of people. No, it's just... What I'm saying is it's too big of a project, mm-hmm. right? I mean, how do you then compile that it's like a voting in in modern politics it, can we go online so that more people are engaged to just click a button and then if we do that do we trust that people are clicking the button because they're engaged in the topics mm-hmm. or there's just gonna be too many people who are like oh this will be fucking hilarious and we'll get you know elizabeth may as uh, the prime minister of canada everybody will be shocked because it was supposed to be funny you know what uh, i don't know is that actually good I have absolutely no idea, right? So I will say, uh, before I forget about it, a, a guest that we have had on this show actually was asked to submit 
for the sight and sound poll. So oh, yeah. Kyle Turner was oh. actually asked. So he has sent in his 10 and he shared what his top 10 were, which I now forget. But <laughs> Gene Dealman was one of the ones he had on his top 10 as well. I just want them to ask me, Dave. That's what I want. I just want them to ask me. So All the right. top 10 for the, for the directors, there was a three-way tie for ninth place, which was In the Mood for Love, Persona, that's the Bergman film, and then Mirror is a Tarkovsky film. So that's the one Bergman representation. For sixth place, there's a two-way tie for Eight and a Half and Vertigo. For fourth place, there's a two-way tie. Again, this is where Jean Dielman shows up on the director's list with Tokyo Story. And then your top three are The Godfather, Citizen Kane, 2001. Pretty standard, what you would expect, to be honest. Kind of what the top three have been for the last 70 years. It's just interesting, right? Like, mm -hmm. uh, if, if they did that for music, right, which is much harder because there's too much of a volume of new material that come out because the songs are not three hours long. I mean, how abstract would that list be? Well, you see that too. Like, I mean, I used to be a huge subscriber to Rolling Stone magazine and they came out in the early 2000s with like the 500 best albums of all time. Oh, yeah. Which in and of itself, I mean, I understand that they are a rock magazine primarily, right. but like, again, that's a very small subset of even just music genre that you're dealing with there to call it the 500 best albums not rock albums just 500 best albums of all time is weird because yeah you're not you're not getting a lot of like r&b music in that etc cetera, etc cetera. it's really just focusing on rock white, and pop white, rock at that right white music white middle yes. class america yeah where then occasionally you'll get like uh um oh my god out, an outcast album to like pop through but like that's <laughs> and then ray charles will put on there too just to have just to, that's even just it to out, but make sure we have some affirmative action in there should eight bob dylan albums be on the top no bob dylan's so fucking overrated yeah <laughs> well i like bob, well i do like bob dylan but like yeah, I of would course never you do put, kyle of I course you do eight of his <laughs> albums as the best <laughs> albums of all time <laughs> You're a white guy raised in Alberta. Of course you love Bob Dylan. I actually don't think Bob Dylan is like a, a country person. No, he's like a country. West Coast liberal elite person. Yeah, sure, sure. He likes to listen to them. But he's got a folksy country uh, underlying tone. Sure. And uh, people love him. <laughs> okay. We should talk about a movie that will probably never show up in the sight and sound poll <laughs> of the top 100 movies of all time. Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Dave, I want to talk about some table setting here first. So there's two big names that are a part of this movie. What is your history Dom with Dolly Dom DeLuise. Parton? Yeah, Dom DeLuise, number one. <laughs> What's your history with Dolly? Um, when I was young. And I should just preface this by saying, if you do say something bad about her, I will kill you. But go, Whatever. proceed. Uh, when I was young, everybody knows Dolly Parton because she has giant boobs. Mm -hmm. um, as I grew older and learning uh, not just her philanthropy, but that she had basically written so many fucking popular yes. songs, which we don't she was know. A writer for right? other people, yeah. Uh, yeah, like it's. Well, see, as the country music listening person as I was, because that's what my parents listened to, so you just listen to what your parents listened to. Like, I knew her singing I Will Always Love You, like the Whitney Houston song, for like oh, a I'd decade never even before, heard it before that popped. Yeah. yeah. No, I'd never heard it before. So I didn't know that. Uh, I think my first association with her music is probably 9 to 5, which yeah. was a huge hit in the huge. 80s. I didn't, I never think of her much as an actress. I know her as a person, like she has a larger than life, of course, persona. Like everybody's probably heard of Dolly Parton. I would she's think so. Like, remains in the ether somehow, right? Even if it's not that, like Jolene, 9 to 5, those are That's two right, pretty Jolene. big songs, I would yeah. say, that have like broken out Broke just through. country radio. That's right. Like the pre-Shania Twain. <laughs> yeah. 
No, the uh, all shucks and stuff at all. She's a great voice. I do love Dolly Parton singing. Yeah, she's got a, as they say, a great instrument. Although mm-hmm. I, you know, again, because I'm not an uh, an aficionado of the country lilt, I I'm not a big you know Dolly Parton fan. I don't think that she's untalented. I just don't like country music so that's that's me i i don't disrespect her and i think you know in her older age she's re-emerged um as this sort of cultural figurehead and mm-hmm. so emerson has these books I, you've probably read them they're like sort of uh, children's biographies of great people they're called like oh nice little book big people or something like that so one of them we got was dolly Parton, and it's just she's such an incredible person like the things that she's built and uh, that she takes part of is fascinating it's one of those things where I, I mentioned this in our Victor Victoria episode about Julie Andrews. My bold claim being Julie Andrews could have been born at any time in film history and been a star. Like it doesn't yes. matter when she was born, she could have made it. Whether it was silence all the way up to modern day. I kind of feel a similar thing to Dolly Parton. It's like I don't really care what generation over the last hundred years she was born into, she would have been able to bro- break through. One, because I think she's a really great comedian. Uh, if you see her on talk shows and the way that she talks about herself, self-deprecating, great musician, great lyric writer, uh, really smart for myself. Like her philanthropy is one of the things I think I do like about her the most. For people who don't know, in the United States, I think it started off in Tennessee, but has now grown to be the entire United States. Any child, age zero to five, she will send you a free book each month to that child. You just have to sign up and she'll send it to you. She pays for that. You don't have to pay anything for that. I think that's a great thing. But even back as early as like the 80s was at the forefront of LGBT rights while being a Christian. And she really, I think, she is like the epitome of what I feel Christianity should be. It's like, listen, Mm. I have my faith. That's for me. You do what you want to do. I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to love you. That's all I want to do. And we kind of alluded to it at the beginning, but I, I feel like anybody that comes from extreme hardship, there's, I mean, it's very polar. You could mm-hmm. become a supervillain, but I also think like when you see how terrible life actually is, not could be, but mm-hmm. is, and then you're given either a gift like her voice and her intellect or whatever it is, we see that. We see that resilience. And I think you're right. If someone was born today... Uh, and we'll see that too. It's not like ghettos don't exist, but you know, uh, what is she? Fourth child of 12 kids yeah. with a sick mom in a single bedroom. <laughs> like, it doesn't make sense. She's like uh, helping feed her family at the, as a kid. That's the type of person that whatever they do, they're going to have uh, a lot of chutzpah, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of uh, focus. So she's, she's a pretty interesting person. Mm-hmm. I yeah, think if cool. our listeners have never looked into her, even Wikipedia hers. Uh, a good read. Yeah, I, I'm definitely a fan of her music. She she hasn't really been in all that many films. Like the '80s was like her biggest output because she does pretty quickly Nine to Five, Steel Magnolias, this film, uh, and there's a one that she does with Sylvester Stallone that I'm now blanking on. But other than that, oh. she hasn't really been in a whole lot of no, stuff. No, wasn't her thing. Yeah, it was like a bunch of Christmas specials. My, I will say two favorite stories, and then we'll move on to Burt Reynolds. One, her first movie is Nine to Five. She came to set was doing this scene and whatever actor she was acting against had forgotten their lines. And she says, oh, your line is this, because she didn't know you didn't have to memorize the entire script. She had just memorized everybody's lines, not just hers. And my favorite quip, I think it was on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, where he asked her, like, do you get bummed out or are you mad when people make dumb blonde jokes about you? And she was like, no, because I'm not dumb and I'm not really blonde. This is called standing, right? Yes, that's right. 
How about Burt Reynolds? What's your history with Burt Reynolds? Uh, Burt Reynolds was at the zenith of his career when I was growing up. Uh, like, uh, sorry, of his main career. I know about the mustache. I think I watched Cannonball Run probably when I was in my teens, like on a VHS. Isn't that notoriously bad? Isn't that a bad oh, movie? Oh, it's terrible. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of my association is he's a charming B-movie actor, even though he was A-list status uh, for a long yeah, time. Yeah, this is... I'm sure there's someone nowadays that'll have the same sort of thing where people will look back and like, they were A-list? How? I have to be mean and be like, that's kind of how I feel about Burt Reynolds. I was looking through his filmography today. I'm like, okay, Smoking the Bandit, fine. No, Smoking the Bandit, right? Fine. It's been a long time. Maybe I'll love that movie if I rewatched it, but uh, I don't remember much from it. Probably not. I've seen him in Deliverance, which is like a very powerful, gritty performance, so fair. And uh, I don't think I've seen a single other Burt Reynolds performance, except for Boogie Nights, I guess. Boogie Nights is the big one, probably, for people. Which he's good in. I actually do think he's great in in Boogie Nights. That's the thing about Burt Reynolds. It's not that he's a particularly bad actor. I just think he came in that late 70s time where, like, we saw that with just culture in general, people were looking for something. Like, if you look at... yeah late 70s early 80s tv it's really hit and miss because i think america was just trying to figure out what they liked he's definitely got a look like i think there is an innate charisma that he has like I, yes. i've seen him he's again charming. on late night tv performances and he can crack a joke and be self-deprecating he can be funny when he's telling a story he was married to lonnie anderson from wkrp that's one, the one little factoid i know because i watched that in reruns and he did this really fascinating guest star spot on an X-Files episode that I recommend nope. people go and watch. It is a, it's a weird episode. It is a super weird episode. But I guess it's all to say is like, I guess I sort of get the Burt Reynolds like star making thing, but I wouldn't say I'm ever a big fan of his movies, no. I guess is where it comes down to. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's it for me. He has enough charisma that I think many people may, again, maybe ending with our generation know who he is. Sure. And I think that most people who know he is, who he is would also have the same problem naming a movie that he's been in. All I need is to go through a mustache ride. He was supposed to be in the role that Bruce Dern played in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the last uh, Tarantino mm. movie, but he died before... They could film that scene. So I they had to cast movie. Bruce Dern instead. And if you watch that movie with the knowledge that it's supposed to be um, Burt Reynolds, Reynolds, and it's it like, oh, better. that makes way more sense of Burt Reynolds being in that role. But anyways, that's beside the point. Any relationship with this movie? No. All I know is that it's a Broadway musical. I listened to the Broadway musical this week in preparation. Say, I was trying to think about why you selected this film for mm-hmm. this year. And then I realized Dolly Parton Broadway. So it had no choice but to be on our list. It also made a ton of money at the box office. Well, so, so, did, so did Porky's. I know. I'm just saying. The fuck is wrong with people? It was fun jumping into that and just learning what this show was all about because I've heard mm-hmm. about it in the past. But uh, I found some interesting things out about this, the, the history of this show. There's like, oh, that's fascinating. I had no idea. What we'll do first, though, let's go to a break. We'll thank some sponsors. And then when we come back, we'll be talking much more about the best little whorehouse. Where is it again? Oh, yes. In Texas. <laughs> Dave, what little blank would you like to open up in Texas? Oh, that's disgusting. Yeah, that's really, <laughs> really gross. <laughs> uh, well, I don't want to be in Texas. I've been to Texas. and I think Texas is fun. Austin is good. Well, I've never been to I went to Dallas. Oh, and, yeah. Dallas uh, is kind of dirty and gross. <laughs> Sorry, Dallas pe- listeners. I, I, I was apologize. there for three weeks on a training thing. Woof. And, uh, yeah. 
It was Good exhausting. barbecue. You should try at the barbecue. You know, I was still eating meat then, but it was too much, right? It's Texas portions. Yeah, this, you can, you can, you, you can, can throw up. Yeah. I uh, went out with friends once when I was visiting Texas and I was like, I feel Can't. gross. <laughs> I could yeah. barely move after yeah. eating it. In Toronto, apparently it's not a term. Apparently this might be a Toronto thing, but you get the meat sweats. So. Oh yeah, we know that. Yeah, I think our hotel was right beside a, a steakhouse. It's probably not a good one. Right, it's not like I was a foodie. Right. There was no internet at the time. I'm like, well, and there's no Google at the time. Yeah. So it was called Arby's. Yeah. When you go out, you have to map quest stuff. Remember map quest? <laughs> and you still have to print it out. Yeah, after. I printed out my map quest directions <laughs> and then went driving somewhere. God, at you're any rate, losers. Um, yeah, I don't know if I would open anything up. Also, uh, I don't understand how retail works. It's so expensive. How do you make money? Listen, Kylan Davis the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This episode of Kylan Davis the Machine is brought to you by Alberta Blue Cross. You know, life as a business owner can be hectic, to say the least. You know, we're trying to open up this storefront in Texas, but Alberta Blue Cross wouldn't help us there because we're in Texas. But Alberta Blue Cross understands that they offer flexible health, dental, life, and disability coverage for your employees even better. You can let your staff enroll and manage their coverage at any time and on any device. That makes life easier for them and for you. You've got this when it comes to group coverage for your small business, and Alberta Blue Cross has got your back. To learn more and explore your options, head on over to ab.bluecross.ca. Our second message is from PodPower. With PodPower, sponsors are making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. And this episode, Edmonton Community Foundation, again, is helping us give a PodPower shout out to... Spinning the wheel. What is Cheesemus? It's a new podcast. Is it new? No, it's like two years old at this point. What is Chismis? It's a podcast with an inside look on Philippine next identity in the diaspora. We should use the word diaspora more. I say diaspora. Chismis is the Tagalog word for gossip. Subscribe to hear weekly episodes about disappointing your parents, breaking to your friends that you're not Italian, trying to figure out why you punched a car, and much, much more. I think it's also Tagalog, but whatever. Uh, what's the Chismas is produced by CJSR, Edmonton's campus and community radio station. Download it wherever you find podcasts on what's the Chismas.transistor.fm. That's T S I S M I S. Dave, we have just sat down here. We have watched this uh, movie musical. Uh, we'll talk about our feelings here in just a moment. Yeehaw and etc. Um, but we have to think of a scenario here because people are probably maybe wondering, what is this movie about? It's such an evocative title. So let's say that we were. You and I have decided to go and visit Texas for some reason. We've flown down. We're in the, uh, what is it? The uh, the George Bush Airport. Is that what it is when you fly in to Houston? In Dallas? Oh, Houston. No, it's in Houston. Know. I think it's the George Bush Airport. Anyways, we've oh, flown into Dallas? Houston. Dallas? Yeah. Is that Dallas? Dallas There's also Star? the John Wayne Airport, but I don't remember where of that is. Of course there is. Yeah. Anyways, we flew into one of those airports. It's on a ranch. And as we get off, there's someone who runs up to us who's carrying both a chicken and a VHS copy of the best little whorehouse in Texas. And they're like, what is this about? What would you say to that horse? Person? Yeah, horse. No, I, I don't know. Uh, how would you describe this movie, Kyle? I think it's mostly about politics is really what this movie is about. Wow. It's a musical comedy about a historic brothel that is uh, about to be closed 
by an evangelical TV gotcha host. And Dave, what did you think about this movie? I don't know. It was, yeah, it was, it was a movie. You truly are the next Roger Ebert. I think it has parts that are engaging, namely, because I too like musicals. A lot of the musical numbers I'm presuming coming out of the Broadway choreography are quite good. The opening sequence is very exciting. Agreed. I think there's a middle section with some dancing. There's a piece at the end, which are choreographed really well. And you can definitely see that it's set up as a stage production yeah. and they're fun to watch. Uh, Dolly Parton is uh, so charismatic. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to say she's a good actress because she is Dolly Parton in this situation so sure it's, it's difficult for me to to define that but she's not she's got a natural charisma on screen she seems to not be phoning it in though like burt reynolds feels like in this movie yeah, yeah. sorry no, to she's break in it. with my opinion but but uh i don't know I, I find the middle parts not middle parts like everything in between the musical numbers just started putting me to sleep it falls into so many small town tropes that i you know as we've been hanging out for so many years Kyle, i just don't buy into as well so you know the gomer pile don't buy into of, well talking about Gobern Pyle, he's in this movie. Yeah. Uh, and literally is in this movie. Yeah, like this sort of uh, yokel, small town humor. Sorry, you, you don't like it because you don't think it exists or that you just don't enjoy no, it? No, I just don't. I, I just don't yeah, okay. care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I just don't care. And then um, I just found the, again, I, I have a problem with uh, Dom DeLuise. I <laughs> don't understand how he His portrays thing. this character. Right? Yeah, you're not the only person to say that. There's so many critics I read that say the exact same thing. It's like, he's going way too broad for this character to make sense. Strange. Yeah. Like, yeah, if they were trying to make a political point and you make this some uh, pastor evil reverend, that's one thing. But to just go full buffoon, it's just... And all of the little gags, they don't play out like the sock, the corset, the wig. They don't matter. So it's... like I thought they were setting them up for a slapstick joke at the end or some kind of reveal. And in the end, Burns punches him in the face. You're like, yeah, oh, okay. he got he got what he was coming for. That's bullshit. I, I, I agree with that. But I mean, I think the joke that they're doing in that one scene, at least, is he's putting on the sock. He's putting on the wig. Talking about being real. Yeah. Talking about being real. Like that is what the joke is. But yeah. yes, they don't do much more with it than that. That's the thing. Like the line is not lost on me. It's just I didn't think it was funny, and I didn't think it played that well. This is why I was trying desperately to find like a bootleg copy of this production or see how it was staged. Oh, the Broadway version. The Broadway show, because I was like. Was it this broad in the stage show? I want to know if, if Dom DeLuise is going, doing something vastly different or it's like, there's no, this is what the show was doing as well. My impulse is that he's going more broad with it than what was originally written. That's my Intended. guess, but I have no way to back that position up. The only thing that really exists online that I can find is the Tony Awards performance where they do the football player song. Uh, in the original choreography where they're all on this one bench, all kind of like jumping around right. over top of each right. other and you stuff, which is intricate scenes. and cool. And it is done very, very well. I think I'm going to actually agree with you more than I disagree with you. I think this film comes alive most often when it is a musical. And it's just a musical. And yeah. it it's kind of like Annie, a, right? Oh, I was going to bring up Annie actually as a, as a good counterpoint to this, where there are certain things when you're adapting a stage musical to a movie musical that you do have to really really wrestle with. This cuts out about eight songs from the stage show. And I think you feel the missing pieces here. Yes. Because yeah. the change that they're also doing is that the characters of Dolly and the, the Dolly and Burt Reynolds play are not as prominent in the stage show as they are in this movie. Oh, they are supporting it's not about characters. Them. It's not oh, about them. 
Like they are important characters. That makes like more the, sense, right? Exactly. It's actually yeah. about these two characters who are coming to join the chicken ranch. They're your audience surrogates. And so they're learning about the rules. They're learning about these two people. The preacher on uh, the TV is coming to try and shut them down. And yeah, the sheriff goes to try and talk to him. But those characters are not central characters. It's these other two that are basically cut out completely from the movie. The entire scene with Dolly and Bert and Bad with the underwear and then the, that song that Dolly wrote for this film, which is not in the original stage production, I think is indicative of what the, the problem with this movie because I thought the, the start is like, okay, this is cool, this is fun, it's trucking along, it's campy, it's cool. And then that scene comes on, it's like, whoa, this came to a crushing <laughs> halt yeah. and nothing is happening for a good 10 minutes. And it's like, we need to speed this along. So when I set this up, I was saying like, you really have to be intentional there is this idea in musical theater that there are certain songs that have to happen to keep the plot moving. Oh, Jesus. Kyle looks like he's about to give a lecture. And the hard part, of course, is that there's always an intermission or usually an intermission in musicals. So you have to really rearrange things in a movie so that there isn't. But the biggest thing that they cut out is the I Want song. The I Want song is always a song that someone sings in a musical that basically says, this is what I am going for. This is mm -hmm. what I want okay. to happen. This is what I want to do. The best example I always use, it's not a stage musical, but it's The Little Mermaid, where it's literally, I want to be part of the human world. Yes. It's very plain. We know what we want. Okay, great. We can go. That I Want song is cut from the movie. <laughs> and so there's no thing at the beginning of like, this is what they all want. This is what the people are going for. And I think you really feel that where it just feels listless and rudderless for the first half of this movie. Like I said, though, and I think you said this is like the choreography and some of the musical performances are really good. I think there's yeah. some really good stuff in Wasted. here. Stand out performance. And I'm so excited that they gave him an, a supporting actor nomination for this is Charles During as the governor who does the sidestep song perfect piece of musical theater in that three minutes of like this is what the whole movie should be it should be like yes. this campy fun over the top he does it so well and again that just goes back to this kind of Just relationship lost. dynamic, which maybe could have helped sustain it if I thought that Dolly and Bert had any chemistry whatsoever on screen, and they don't. Well, it just feels so nothing throughout this movie, which is just too bad, because I think there are some parts of this that are actually great. That describes yourself as well. Hearing you say that they cut out so much to add in the stiff, broken romance makes mm -hmm. sense, because the other problem with this is that Dolly Parton, who our eyes are drawn to through the whole film, actually has the weakest character. What is she actually? Yeah. She has this one moment where you think she might become the active protagonist, which is when she disappears from the house, sure. you know, because Burt, Burt Reynolds is worried that he's going to get caught philandering, or not mm. philandering, but uh, having uh, an affair with the head of the chicken ranch, and then she appears in a car and she's already covered from, and I'm like waiting for that to happen at the climax of this film, that she's actually going to somehow have some witty endgame to like actually make this work, and instead she just flops around a little bit and I will always love you shows up on this and it just does not fit. It doesn't work. This like, film, I love her, it doesn't work. I love, her, I love her singing that song, but it does not work in the context it's of this so movie. It's so weird, right? When that, just when that song starts, face. I was like, no way. Yeah. She is not singing this song. Right? But second of all, I was like, she didn't write this song for this movie, did she? She did I, not. But okay, for a second, good. like, like, this cannot be historically written for this movie. If she didn't write this f for the movie, why the fuck is it in here anyway? Because it's a, it was a hit for her. So that's what I mean. Fans, it's so strange. Like, it's weird. Right? It's so weird. It, uh, but yeah, it, it was already almost ten years old at this point. Oh, the wow. uh, the thing about I don't know the legend of Dolly Parton, we'll say, 
is that she wrote Jolene and I will always love you on the same day. So wow. just talking about like being in the zone for, for one day and knocking those two out. But uh, yeah, so I, I like that. The football player song I think is done really well. Yeah. I'm actually fascinated a little bit about how far they go with showing like simulated sex in this movie. I was actually kind of not expecting that because mm-hmm. that does not happen in the stage show from my understanding. Well, you couldn't have. Let's just put it that plainly. I, I don't think you could go that raw in a musical even, that's meant yeah. to make a, a bunch of money at the broadway box office even the intro i was i was surprised that it was so adult mm-hmm. from the get-go i mean it's campy it's kind of sure. funny it's it's choreographed to be yeah if anyone's gonna watch it it's this timeline of the evolution of the chicken ranch and because it's about prostitutes they show cute glamorized version but it's like you know there's boobs out people dancing men uh, getting in I think that's the weird kind of disconnect with this is that because the language and the actual like set piece of the chicken ranch is so sanitized, the fact that they're having pretty graphic sexual acts and like make a breast and all that kind of stuff in the movie is like weird. (laughs) It's it's a weird disconnect for me because it's like I can I can accept it being a sanitized version and you're talking around it. But then when you're actually showing the thing, it's like, okay, why is this so overt and like no one's it doesn't feel real is really what I'm trying to say. I think it's the Porky's culture. I think Mm. a bunch of bros took this uh, and they took out the part that I think the musical theater community would have uh, had more integrity with Mm -hmm. and then went for a populist idea that we have all these beautiful women who are great dancers and men, you know, so everybody's got to be topless because that's what's going to sell tickets. And Kyle, they were right, apparently, because as you're about to talk about, this thing made bank and there's no way this made bank because it's a good movie because it's not actually a good movie. Yeah, people right? are, I mean, I think the word whorehouse, I think that's another crazy oh, thing. Did you read the, the stuff about how that wasn't allowed to be in the title? Yes, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But the fact that even on Broadway, the best little whorehouse in Texas is a very provocative title. Yes. Like trying to sell anything with the word whore in it, to, like tourists coming to New York City is a pretty hard sell at least in the 80s for sure yeah. nowadays nobody gives a shit but uh, uh, i actually think you would probably get more pushback nowadays with like social oh, yeah? media and stuff like that i think you would probably they, someone would make it their like their cause to be like how dare they pervert the youth of today so the um, irony that this story is actually about the future mm-hmm. i mean i i actually have to say though like that part of it like the actual politics uh, of this it's There's actually some fascinating stuff. Yes. I keep going back to the sidestep song because I think it's so perfect because I think it's funny. I think the song is good. I think the lyrics are really great. And it's also commenting on something true about like how yeah. politicians say a Wait. lot, but actually say nothing at the same time. Are there any songs that for you stood out at all? No, I don't remember them. I mean, the sidestep songs probably the best one. I don't remember what they were singing about. No, I mean, the football players are singing about getting laid, but I don't remember the melody. I remember the choreography, the prom dress scene afterwards. I don't remember the melody again. I, I don't know. I Also, talk about that being something that would not be oh, yeah. fly today, <laughs> which is like a teenagers. conservative governor <laughs> paying for prostitutes for a football team, and everyone kind of just knows about it. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, even though that's probably true, uh, more oh, than sure. anything. I think, too, because... When Dolly, when Dolly's asked to bring in country music, I think it changes the tone of the music menship, whatever you call it, sure. uh, between the two types of um, songs. So I, I don't know. I didn't feel like there was a single tone. Like in any, even though we didn't like the movie version, 
the music itself has a line so you, you can like or dislike the music of Annie. This one's kind of a mess because we'll get a Broadway production of one of their main numbers and then she'll sing I Will Always Love You for no reason in a living room at the end and you're like I was going to mention this too like they're the, the the score doesn't feel cohesive. In the first one, you enter in with it being a kind of a country-like song mm-hmm. uh, in the stage show. And there's ballads and stuff, but the whole thing does feel of a piece. In this, you get some of the original Broadway, and then like, oh, that is a Dolly Parton song yes. that is being sung out. And it doesn't make that song bad, necessarily. It just means, oh, this feels like out of odds with what the rest of the score is. It's such and a Burt big Reynolds can't too, sing all that well, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> that's, oh, but that's the thing, like... Which I can forgive. A, it's whatever. I don't care It was that a much. big miss because... Because when she sings the opening number, she's great in it. Like having yeah. her use her trademark Dolly Parton voice in a Broadway written song works really, really well. And mm-hmm. instead, I guess they're trying to leverage her country music star, star power. power. Yeah, that's exactly what this is. And I think that was a mistake. It's it does, mistake. after listening to the score this week, it does cut out my second favorite song of the entire movie, where, again, she uh, explains musical. what she wants, which which I would have loved to hear Dolly sing. I was actually in, in, being uh, excited, like, oh, I really want to hear what Dolly Parton sounds like when she sings this song. And she doesn't. So that was too bad. I will always love you not getting what you want. Let's do some backstory here, and then we'll maybe wrap this up. So this movie opened up on July 23rd, 1982, currently rated 3.4 on Letterboxd has a 6.0 on IMDb, has a 40 on Metacritic, and on Rotten Tomatoes from 12 critics, but the same as the original Sight and Sound poll, it has 42%, and from 10,000 plus users, it has a 68%. It is available on DVD and Blu-ray, currently available to purchase or rent from iTunes and YouTube. I don't know what its budget is, Dave. There's two different major reports that is anywhere between 20 or $35 million to make this movie. Is one maybe adjusted for inflation? It's I don't know. That's why, I'm, that's why I don't know why is that, that is that huge of a discrepancy. Yeah, Regardless, yeah. it would go on to make $69.7 million. Or if adjusted for inflation, that, that would be like a movie making $215 million today. It would be the ninth highest grossing film of the year. Not as much as Porky's. Not as much as Porky's, that is true. Its plot description is, A town's sheriff and regular patron of a historical whorehouse fights to keep it running when a television reporter targets it as the Devil's Playhouse. All right, Dave, we have to play a game. Everyone's favorite game called Guess Guess That Tag. Tag. Uh, this is, of course, when I put on my fancy blazer. I use the long microphone Bob Barker used to use. And Dave, I know that you are going to be there opening night here tonight to watch Avatar The Way of Water. And you go into the theater. You see that row of posters. There's these little taglines that are on the poster to help entice you to come to the movie. So there was a tagline to this film. One of these is the true tagline. Two of these are completely made up by me. So do you think it was singing, dancey, dolly, Bert, fun? Is it... The best little movie this summer, or is it with Burton Dolly? This much fun just couldn't be legal. <laughs> I don't know. Let's go with three. Let's go with three. With Burton Dolly, this much fun just couldn't be legal. Yeah, you are correct. Yes, that okay. is the actual tagline. All right, good. This stars, of course, Dolly Parton as Mona Stanley, Burt Reynolds as Sheriff Ed Earl Dodd, Dom DeLuise as Melvin, Charles Durian as the Governor, and Jim Neighbors as Deputy Fred. 
Anything we want to say about these actors that we haven't said already? Not really. Because I should have been born in the 1940s, as <laughs> Dave always says, I do have a fondness for Jim Neighbors. I think he's actually perfectly cast in this movie as the dopey deputy. Yeah. Because that's what he was. He was Gomer Pyle for many, many years. That's have you ever thing. watched that I, in reruns? He's not bad in it. It's just not used well, right? Sure. He just but just shows up to be an idiot. And I feel like... I guess, yeah. When you do that, they need to have at least one moment where that idiocy either plays a big negative or a big constructive role somehow inadvertently and i just i feel like it was a missed opportunity that's all i mean i, I just like no his, problems with this i think his line face. delivery he actually reminds me a lot like a, a modern or semi-modern if anyone ever watched 30 rock the role of kenneth the the nbc page like they're, they're basically the same character like super chipper upbeat even when they're telling you like devastating information um this is basically his last movie because he does this and then he does uh cannonball run 2 and then nobody from that movie ever worked again. Um, it's, <laughs> I mean, a little bit facetious, but not far off the point. It's cinematography for this movie was done by William A. Fraker, whose top four at IMDb are 1941, the Steven Spielberg movie, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest from 1975, War Games from 1983, and Bullet from 1968. So wow. those are the film, other films that he shot. This is like at the end of his career, I guess. Mm, I have to double check, but I think you're right. Uh, but all, by the way, this is not a confirmed thing, but apparently Steven Spielberg is making a bullet film as his next project. Yes. Hmm. Uh, you know, we're Steven Spielberg aficionados, but does he spend too much money now? I saw the trailer. Is mm -hmm. he, he's doing Indiana, right? Nope. Oh, it's somebody else. Nope, someone else who's doing it. Ah, okay. Because he just producer. looks... It looks overproduced. Gotcha. Already. Yeah, no, that's not him. West Side Story was like that too. It was a little too big for what it was supposed to be. I, Visually, I, I mean. I, I like that movie, but. Yeah, it was good. I enjoyed it. This is written by Larry L. King, not Larry King, the talk show host. It's oh. Larry L. King. And, and Peter Masterson. the D. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so Larry L. King and Peter Masterson and Colin Higgins, based on the musical of the same name, was booked by Larry L. King and Peter Masterson, with music and lyrics by Carol Hall. Directed by Colin Higgins. Just starting with the stage show, the whole concept of the musical began with Larry L. King, who was a fascinating figure. He had quite a career. He grew up in Texas, started out in the army, came back to take schooling in journalism, became a crime reporter, then eventually moved to Washington, D.C. and worked as an aide to a couple of congressmen. And then after working in politics, he really becomes a writer, makes articles, books, and becomes a fixture in what would be then called the new journalism. So think of people like Hunter S. Thompson, Truman Capote, Joan Didion, those types of people. He is the one who writes the original article about the chicken ranch that would appear and be released as an article in Playboy, uh, you know, back when they actually wrote articles. And as a, just as an aside, he like really liked this convention of the best little blank in Texas as titling his stuff. Because in 1982, he released this hour-long CBS documentary called The Best Little State House in Texas, which was about the behind-the-scenes of the Texas House of Representatives that he won an Emmy for. Uh, and that you can watch on YouTube. The whole thing is there for you to peruse. Regardless, write this article for Playboy. I have no idea who came, who started the idea of like, we need to make this a Broadway musical. Maybe it was, uh, who's the publisher of Playboy? Hugh Hefner. Maybe Hugh, Hugh Hefner, Hefner was like, I love the musical. We Ghost have to make this a musical it. on Broadway. Okay. But Larry L. King collaborates with Peter Masterson, who, yes, has a daughter of Mary Stuart Masterson. 
they write this. He came in to help him write this out as a book to the musical. Masterson, though, is primarily known as an actor. He appeared in the original Stepford Wives, In the Heat of the Night, and The Exorcist. Uh, he would also go on to direct the movie The Trip to Bountiful in 1985. But they collaborated on this musical. The person who writes the music and lyrics is this person named Carol Hall. She's also from Texas. Wrote a few one-act plays then starts songwriting, uh, even releases a couple of solo albums in the 70s, but would become really better known, kind of like Dolly Parton in the early part of her career, as writing songs for other people. Uh, one of her biggest claims to fame, though, is that she wrote a bunch of songs in the early years for Sesame Street. Uh, her musical theater contributions are really not that extensive. It's basically this show, uh, another show called Max and Ruby, which was made for kids, and then a sequel to Best Little Whorehouse in Texas called The Best Little Whorehouse Goes Public, which did not last very long. It, like, it was like no. 15 performances or something. Sounds it did not stupid. last very long. Okay. Uh, yeah, it sounds like a bad idea, but th that's beside the point. King and Masterson and Hall collaborate and create this Broadway production, which debuts June 19th, 1978. To come in and co-direct and help out with a choreography is our good friend, Tommy Toon. You remember Tommy Toon, Dave? Yeah. Mr. Lanky. Uh, Mr. Seven Foot Tall Tommy oh, yeah. Tune. He's a good dancer. Yeah, great dancer. Um, Masterson would also help with directing, and the other choreographer was Tommy Walsh, but Tommy Tune is really well known for his choreography. And in fact, there's that uh, Tony Awards performance I was talking about with the players out on a bench is something he would do a few different times in his productions of people just sitting on a bench and like crossing legs and jumping over top of each other and just being really intricate that way. The funny thing about it is that song, as it appears on stage, is actually not performed on the Tony Awards performance or in this movie, the way it appeared on stage, because there's innuendos that they speak that are bleeped in the Tony Awards performance and that they cut out of the movie completely. Basically saying it's like, we want to go there and hopefully they let us come. You know, it's a double entendre, but like, so, so could you not explain double to entendre. me though, Kyle? Yeah. Like what, what are they it's, meaning? It's, <laughs> it's so, it's, it's so not subtext. It just becomes text at that point. <laughs> I feel. Oh, I, just, I, 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 yeah. I would like you to spend some time explaining Okay, that so when a man loves a woman, Dave, it would go on though that year. It would be nominated for a bunch of stuff. Like it would be nominated for best musical, best book, best choreography, et cetera, et cetera. It would only win two for two of the performers in, in, the, uh, in the production. It had the unfortunate uh, reality of opening up in the same season as Sweeney Todd. And it just, there was no way anything was winning against Sweeney Todd. It was just too much of a huge force at that time. I prefer popping pussies into pies. But well liked by audiences. It is still the 53rd longest running Broadway show of all time. Oh, wow. Uh, ran for about four years. And in fact, it would only have closed about four months before this movie premiered. As for the movie, the original writing team came back and reworked the script because uh, as we mentioned, Dolly and Bird are not the main characters in the stage production. Anytime you get big stars, of course, with big personalities, you start having to wade through weird demands. Uh, the actors that King suggested were rejected because they weren't box office draws, so they settled on Dolly, who was coming off of 9 to 5. Then King suggested having Willie Nelson be the sheriff, uh, but the studio decided, no, 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 we're going to go with Burt Reynolds, bigger name. Uh, Reynolds immediately demanded changes to the script again because he really wanted to sing. He wanted to show off his singing prowess. His singing prowess. <laughs> no, it, worked, it worked really well for him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The one song that he sort of mumbles to. Because of these big personalities, instead of sticking with the stage team directors of Masterson and Toon, which was the original idea, it was for them to come and actually be the directors of the movie, they instead hired Colin Higgins, who had also worked with Dolly 
doing 9 to 5 because he directed that movie. Now, Burt Reynolds claims that it was Dolly who had the other directors fired. That's what he says. But I don't know. He's the only person who states that. Parton, of course, is quoted as saying that filming this movie was a complete nightmare. She did not have fun making this movie. Whatever onset debacles were going on, the bigger issue was how to market this film. Because as we just mentioned, in 1982, in many markets, you could not release a movie with the word horror in the title. You just could not do it. So some parts of the country uh, and the world, it needed to be changed to the best little cat house in Texas. And on TV, for the promos that would be run, it would sometimes even have to bleep the word from being said. The funniest thing is that at the time in Canada, this is where it makes absolutely no sense to me. You could say the word, but you cannot show the word. So they actually had to put like the garble thing over the word whore, but they would just say best whorehouse in Texas. And that was fine. Canada. Bizarre. I think it's huh? infinitely hilarious that that is like a rule. It's like, well, we can't show the word. People here can read. Maybe that's why they're like mm-hmm. in the States. We're not sure if they're literate, but here right. in Canada, we're a bunch of readers. It came with a pretty mixed reviews, but did do amazing at the box office. Dave, do you know the interesting fact of what film streak this broke? No. This is the movie. The dethroned E.T. as the number one movie at the box office. So E.T. had this historic six weeks in a row that would not be broken until Titanic came out. But yeah, Best Little Horror House in Texas is the thing that breaks that. It's giving this movie a little too much credit because that sixth week, you're probably flagging a little bit. Well, except E.T. would come back and be number one for 10 more weeks after That's because people were like, uh... I know. Is this okay? Do we miss something? That's like um, the little fun fact. Do you know the movie that eventually dethroned Titanic after 16 weeks? No. Lost in Space. Lost in no. Space is the first movie to beat Titanic. I actually like that movie. <laughs> yeah, I actually enjoyed one. that movie. It would be nominated for only one Academy Award, and it was for Best Supporting Actor. Mm-hmm. Final little nomination. You know, we kind of touched on everything. I, I feel like there's a lot of missed opportunity. It is interesting to learn that the writers of the Broadway production were directly involved in mm. breaking this script apart the way that it is. So I don't know whose influence it was for them to move so far away from their conceived idea. It smacks of outside interference, either by the producer or the new director, that you would, you know, entirely retool a story uh, yeah. for a film. So. Uh, that part's weird, but otherwise, you know, Kyle, I, I was doing a lot of Wikipediaing while it was running. I'll just put it that oh, way. Oh, so you won't watch. I mean, there are some fun lines here and there. I'm not going to go through all of these, but um, I like the fact that they call it a loveless copulation. Just a, a mouthful to say that. And I do think that there are some things that for like even a modern day audience, uh, I mean, this is why I think I would like to see a stage production of this, because I'm sure it probably works better in the stage environment, but discussing like oh, like my my opponents are communists or communist sympathizers, that's who the actual enemy is, like deflecting it off of yourself. Him even saying, you can't legislate morality. I, I, I think it's just a, a wrap up. I just want to know what your thoughts are on that. Like if this was something that was happening right now, where there was like, I don't know, a brothel being run by a madam yeah, in Calgary, Alberta, would you care yeah. about, like, would you be on the forefront? Like, no, we need to close this down for the moral good of society. Well, I don't know. I was thinking about this at the end of this movie. Like, what's the difference between the chicken ranch and a strip club? Mm. I, I just, I don't know, right? Well, like, sex, I guess, is the big one. But Yeah, but is it? And so, like, <laughs> but I think is it? morality, particularly in America more than anywhere else, is this paradoxical problem where we have what people yell about and we have how people actually are. 
And so if we see this, for example, with tobacco and alcohol sales as well, and then, you know, you can not only sell booze, but tell people that if they don't drink, they're a loser. But then if sure. somebody does heroin or crack, they're criminal element and they should deserve yeah, to be homeless. Yeah, there seems to be this weird scale of what we consider like right and Strange, moral. Strange, right? Cigarettes. We know that they're cancerous, chemically manipulated to be addictive. We know there's no benefit and yet they are absolutely must keep selling at a convenience store. Meanwhile, we had to fight everybody just to smoke pot. Well, I mean, there's even like the small things of, um, at least here in Calgary, I mean, this might be a Canada-wide thing, but it's like you can go to a building and drink to excess, be falling down as you come out, hopefully to a cab and be driven home. But if you're standing outside and drinking to excess, well, that we have to arrest you That's for. That's a crime. Like, this seems yeah. like a weird... Unless you're brown bagging it. America's obsessed with pornography. They're yes. obsessed with strip clubs. They're obsessed with sex. The moment it's out in the open, they're like, oh, we don't do that. That's a fucking yeah, sin, I mean, right? I mean, that's the so, thing about the conservatism of America. And I think that is creeping into Canada as well, which is like, well, you can't like flaunt it. It's like, we know this is going on and we'll even um, do it behind closed doors. But we need to either regulate it or chastise it or close things down uh, in the public sphere. Because how dare we like degrade the morality of the nation? Yeah, but we strange. know everyone is doing it. Like, that's the stupid thing about it. And like this evangel... Uh, this TV expose character. I mean, the ones, you know, it's the, the projection thing. The ones that are the loudest are the ones partaking in what they're upset about, right? And I think, yeah, I don't even remember the original question. I just, I just think that there's a problem with culture in general. And it's starting to creep in not only into Canada, but Europe and Asia as well, where the impact of this American voice is kind of fucking up any kind of discussion about morality anymore just, so. i think just to put it plainly as this is depicted in the film i personally but literally have no problem with this venue existing it is people that are in full knowledge of the interaction and the transaction that is happening all of them are adults it's totally cool by me i would not really like this if this was like a child trafficking ring that they're sticking kids off the streets and forcing them into prostitution but see, but here's the thing that that is the American rhetoric, and that's the right. problem. That's the problem with sensationalized things like Twitter. Yes, absolutely. You know, stealing women, children, people mm -hmm. uh, to be used as mules is fucking disgusting. Not just reprehensible, but to the point where we should talk about death penalty things. Like, mm -hmm. anybody who's going to target someone to harm them in that manner is sick. But... On the flip side, who gets to choose the line? And as we learn with Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein, how prevalent is that actually in our society that you and I just want to be naive to? That's when you get into this problem with policymaking. I think that the older I get, the more I realize I am not capable of running a nation. I mean, I can hardly keep hold of my own life. So then how do you make a decision that's going to affect, let's say in Calgary, what are we, 1.2 million, 1.4 million people right now, right? Is there a single code of behavior that benefits every single person in society? Absolutely not. It's impossible. Everybody has to live amongst their own uh, wavelength, right? So what someone in abject poverty has to do to survive is going to be different than some oil exec and their moral quandaries. And ironically, it's likely the oil exec, you know, it has greater moral uh, freedom because they don't have less consequences. Whereas the people at the bottom, they may have to make desperate choices, but they're very restricted in what they're yeah. capable of doing because they have no means. So, you know, you meet good people on both sides. How do you find a line in the middle that makes sense? I don't know, man. Like, we have this 
pro-sex worker rhetoric going on, particularly in feminist literature, that it should be just its own profession. But the flip side, as you bring up, is the doom and gloom. Like, what if people don't want to be there? What if we have this, you know, uh, brutalized pimp culture? What if we have drug addiction, etc., that's involved in that? So I just don't know enough. To, I don't think humanity knows enough about itself to know how to tackle that problem, you know? I, th I think Dolly could solve it, honestly. <laughs> if she could, she would have already. We're done here. All right, well, the machine has said that we do have to wrap things up here. So let's move on to Critics' Choice, the part of the show where we discover what the critics thought at the time that this film was released. Roger Ebert gave this two out of four stars, was not a huge fan of it. And he writes in part, Parton and Reynolds are pleasant enough in Horror House, and we expect that from two such likable actors. Dom DeLuise is wildly improbable and distractingly bizarre as the TV investigative reporter who wants to shut down the chicken ranch. Charles Durning has a lot of fun with a sly song and dance routine. Lois Nettleson has a thankless role as Reynolds' other mistress. We never do know what to make of their relationship, which mm -hmm. must have been mangled in the editing. There were a few funny jokes, some raunchy one-liners, some mostly forgettable songs set to completely forgettable choreography, and then there is Dolly Parton. If they ever give Dolly her freedom and stop packaging her so antiseptically, she could be terrific. But Dolly and Bert and Whorehouse never get beyond the concept stage in this movie. Um, I think he's just noticing the editing is really off in this movie. This feels like so much stuff has been removed while also simultaneously just feeling like it's not moving forward in some scenes. I wonder, I mean, I don't know, but I wonder if someone like Dolly Parton is the reason why her role has to be a certain way. Like maybe she has a very strong manicured performative appearance. Sure. Just listening to Ebert's wish that she would, like we saw, I mean, we see Jacqueline, who is it? Uh, Jerry Lewis do this with um, King of Comedy, just to mm. actually break down this veneer of a performer and show the human being underneath. I wonder if Dolly Parton just wouldn't want to do that because this is a prime opportunity to, to what we would call Oscar bait now Sure. To have yeah. like a pop star play a horror house uh, matron, but actually delve into some yeah, of the, the prostitute with the heart of gold, like that yeah. trope is, in so and so many you know, right, movies. That uh, difficulty in having to mm. find morality in that situation, but it just doesn't go there. So I don't know whose well, fault that is. Pauline Kael also did not like this movie very much. She writes in part, this is not how she wraps up, this is kind of partway through her review. The joke in the material is that this relatively clean, well-run bordello is shut down, while big-time vice in the cities is undisturbed. Higgins, who did the rewrite of the script by King and Peter Masterson, they also wrote the stage version, doesn't seem comfortable with satire. Even the finish of the sidestep sequence is given short shrift when the governor hears the results of a poll and hastens to be on the winning side. Higgins has turned the material into your basic flabby old love story. The sheriff has to overcome his prejudice against the life his dolly has led before he can settle down with her. It can't be too difficult for him. She doesn't have the gimlet eyes that you often see in photographs of actual madams. All right, Dave, do you think this movie wrong. do you think this movie holds up and is it culturally relevant? I'm gonna go with no and no. I can't imagine anybody enjoying this who even a Broadway fan I think would prefer to watch this on a stage. Yeah, I, I think I would. I mean there, again, I think there's selected scenes like I would maybe watch on YouTube again just That's to just because we're scene. grasping at at it, right? We're but hoping I'm not gonna but I'm not going to watch this movie probably again. I will no. say there is a, a person I follow on Instagram who is a really great hairstylist whose 
whose shop is called The Best Little Hair House. So he is a lover of this movie. So there's, there are fans out there. Oh, there's fans for everything. There's fans I think of Porky's. A, a, a camp right? value, I think, is what people are coming in here with. I don't think it's terrible because... How does Dolly Parton not get caught in stuff with so many tassels on her clothing? I know. <laughs> I was beginning to always caught in door frames or something. I get caught getting out of my car wearing jeans sometimes. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, we need to rate this film, but before we do, that's what Dave and I thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle Katie VSTM. We also release videos on our YouTube channel. And if you want to see the entire list of films that we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our letterbox page, letterboxd.com slash Katie VSTM. Uh, we are basically the sight and sound of our time. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the next apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There is a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar per month. And something that you can do for absolutely free is leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. Can I, can I just make a quick point yeah. for the belabored intro that we have? That's what we should have brought up. And so we do have a top 100 that so right. far. Right? And it does not line up with the sight and sound poll. No, no. I'm going to go first this week for rating the movie Ooh. because I want to lay out something. Ooh. I looked at the other I looked at the other <laughs> musicals that we've talked about this year. Okay. And so I was like, is this better or worse than Grease 2? I was like, well, I think it's better than Grease 2 is. Okay. Do I think this is better or worse than Annie? And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, I think it's maybe slightly better than Annie, but basically on the same level, I yeah. would say. It's basically yeah. the same level as Annie. Is this better or worse than Victor Victoria? Worse. Is much worse than Victor Victoria. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so just looking at our scores of that, I'm kind of signing in with what I gave Annie, which is a slightly to positive review, which is like, this movie's forgettable. I'm never, I'm going to forget about this movie probably in about a week. So I don't hate it enough to be like awful trash, like one star, but it's, it's not I don't like where this viewing. is going. Yeah. That's a long defense for the number that I've already seen on your letterbox page. I'm going to give it a three. I'm going to give it a three. <laughs> <That's> so high. <laughs> I, did, I did really like some uh, of the sequences. That's what I mean. Oh I just really like some of the sequences in this movie. Well, so. I also like some of the sequences and I'm giving it a two. I think mm-hmm. that... Yeah, this is exactly what we did with Annie. So yeah, this, this, I think this realistic, uh, you need to do some self-reflection on what the number three means for yourself because we've hardly said anything positive and you've given um, it an above average score. I'm pretty sure score. I mentioned the greatness of Dolly Parton. The half the half line of a five is a 2.5, which means anything above <laughs> yeah, but I want, but that is, is a good. failure. That, that's a failure of a movie. And I think it's a slightly positive. It's slightly Strange positive. Strange person. I just don't hate everything, Dave. So as I suspected... Dave, is this better or worse than Annie? I think it's worse. Um, really? I don't yeah. think so. I, if I was given the choice between the two, I would pick this one. It's shorter, for one yeah, thing. Yeah, it's shorter. And like, yeah, okay, let's put it above Annie, because I think the intro is better, and it mm-hmm. does have the uh, fun song in the middle, but it's still a, it's still not good, and I would still not watch it again. Okay. And just to make a point, do you think better or worse than Dragonlord? Uh, oh, that's a weird comparison. <laughs> I've put it below, I guess. And the more uh, the more we sit apart from Dragon Lord, we definitely watched an uh, improperly cut version of it because... Uh, <laughs> well, someone should release an actual Blu-ray for us so that we can watch well, the real version. In the Blu-ray trailer, people seem to have the opposite talk about it. So I suspect it has been reworked for the Blu-ray version. So th- th- that's what's going to be here. The Best Little Horror House in Texas is going to enter our list at the number 34 position. That's high. Uh, 
right about no it's not dave what are you talking about <laughs> that's not even at the halfway point well, well i thought what is a halfway point for you 25 again? would be because we've talked about 49 well yeah sorry we've talked about 48 oh, films man. currently so 24 would be the with the halfway oh, point right, so it's right. below halfway it's above uh above annie right below dragon lord we should probably find out what we're watching here next week though. i'm going to push this button oh nice little Synergy here, Dave. We just watched a movie that was based on a Broadway show. So a Broadway show that was uh, adapted into a film. We we're going to watch a film that would eventually become adapted into a Broadway musical, which is my favorite year. My favorite can I, year. Can I just ask you, Kyle, why we watched all the good movies already and we're finishing <laughs> the fucking year on this dross? Because they're short, Dave. They're shorter. So we can oh, actually bang Kyle, through these. Man. Uh, it's always Peter O'Toole. You like Peter O'Toole. Peter O'Toole, is, he's not sober. I know he won't be in this. This is a, a fictionalized <laughs> account of uh, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner doing their show, shows with You know uh, what I think is interesting Caesar. is that is the highest functioning alcoholic who ever lived. When we read the anecdotal evidence yeah. of the amount of booze this man drank This was a day, on. Yeah. It's shocking. All right, well, we'll do that. We'll be talking about my favorite year here next week. Um, oh, all right, well, Dave, gosh. I guess we should just count all our chickens. I miss watching movies I enjoyed already. <laughs> Fini- we could have paired this Dave, with Victor you and literally Victoria. Literally three movies this year, so you can <laughs> you can't really complain because you don't like what? anything. I, uh, no, no, this year's been way better than seventy uh, one. I've got uh, a lot of your score doesn't really reflect that. I don't think. At any rate, at any was, rate, we've c- recorded too long. Come the fucking chickens, okay? <laughs> I prefer popping pussies into pies.